Let's pray together. Father, help us to remember that the Bible says that because of Calvary, where Christ died for us, we've been bought with a price, that we're not our own anymore. We belong to you. We belong to him. And therefore, the right response is for us to glorify you with all that we are. Help us to think about what that means even as we come to your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I invite you to come with me to Matthew chapter 15, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. And it's kind of a climactic time in the ministry of Jesus Christ, and all along he has been interacted with interacting with the religious leadership of the day. Summarized here, as we'll see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And when we hear Pharisees, we, you know, if we run around the Bible, we're kind of conditioned to think, oh, boo, they're the bad guys. But they weren't regarded that way during the time of Jesus. They were regarded as the serious committed students of the Bible and God's Word and really kind of a reform movement to be even more devoted to God than religious Jews who were, or irreligious Jews who weren't observant or the Sadducees that were kind of the theological liberals of their time that didn't take all of the Bible seriously. But the Puritans, I mean the Pharisees who were kind of the Puritans of their day, they did. And then they were the teachers of the law, the experts in Bible interpretation. That's who Jesus is engaging with in this passage. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now the tradition of the elders was the interpretations of God's word that were intended to make people more observant to God's Word, more carefully obedient. And it had just gathered over years and years and years and centuries by now, but it was basically human interpretations of the Word of God. So those are the two things that are at play. The Word of God inscripturated, Jesus calls that the command of God, and your tradition. There was no word of God that said that every person had to wash before they ate. Priests had to, but this is how they kind of did it. Well, if it's good enough for priests, then we ought to make everybody do it. Add that to our tradition. Add that to our religious consensus of how to live pleasing to God. Jesus says, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And now he's going to cite an example where they're interpreting the Bible had actually gotten to such a place where it was leading them to actually disobey and nullify a direct command from God. For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his mother, father or mother must be put to death. But you say, in this tradition, you've got this korban provision, but you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, if you put it in that category, he is not to honor his father with it. And Jesus, and we, you know, we're not going to try to spend time of sorting it all out, but Jesus draws this conclusion. Thus, 
You nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain. It's empty. It's pointless. They might as well stop. Their teachings are but rules, that is, precepts taught by men. Now, I just want us to think, somehow, things have gotten to the place where the most zealous people among the professing people of God who are allegedly Bible-believing people, it has actually gotten to the place where Jesus says, you are hypocrites. And hypocrite was the word for an actor back then. That is, one who wears a mask. When they played a particular role, they didn't just dress like, they actually wore the mask of whatever character they were playing. Jesus says, you do that with God. You just wear a mask and pretend to be different than you actually are. And he says, your worship, which doesn't just mean when they go up to temple, your devotion to me, your lived out devotion to me is now empty. You keep saying kind of the right things. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. And you've gotten to the place now where your worship and your engaging with me is no longer guided by my word, but with your traditions, with your man-made consensus about how I should engage with God. And I just want us to see it's possible for things to get that far off. Not even among the obviously liberal or those who deny God's word, but those who would claim to believe it and to be living by it. Think of Laodicea. The church of Laodicea. It's another case of how people who, they thought they were golden spiritually. They thought they were rich and increased with goods and thriving and prospering spiritually. And Jesus, the Lord of the churches, walks among them and he says, you're naked, you're blind, you're pitiful. Literally, you make me sick. I'm going to, I know it doesn't sound, but it's, it's not spit. It's vomit, Jesus says. And just the very prospect that a group who would claim to be the Bible-believing ones could get so far off that they could be in this circumstance and in this situation. How did it happen? We've already signaled and hinted. They got in the habit of going along with their own ideas, their own consensus of opinion as religious People, instead of really going by the word of God, the command of God, and sticking close to that. Now that says to me that that prospect, that danger is always out there for the professing people of God. That it's always possible for us to drift, we'll keep using the words, We'll keep using the vocabulary and the jargon, but we can actually get to the place where we're so far off that Jesus would say, 
It's hypocritical, it's empty, it's vain. You know, the reality is, people do religion for all kinds of reasons, and they're not all about really engaging with God. Some, just kind of the respectability attached to it. Some, it's kind of therapy. It just sort of, it makes me feel better. I just kind of feel fired up when I go to church, when I go to church. Some, it's, uh, you like to be a part of a big cause, something bigger than yourself. Some people, it's kind of self-improvement. I like to be sharp physically. I like to be, go to every business seminar that teaches me how I can be the best that I can be. So you know what? I'd like to have a spiritual angle in my life as well. There are all kinds of reasons to kind of be attached to religion and to church that aren't really the real thing. And that's what Jesus is talking about. But this morning... I wanted to focus on one area that I know I've addressed before this past summer. I'll do it again this morning, and then, heaven helping me, I'll move on, and I'll say, go listen to the March 9th sermon if you want my thoughts on this. I did this in creative. I want to do it. I didn't do it in first balance, but I want to do it here. Ask you two questions and for you to raise your hand. And don't be uncomfortable. No one, you know, don't look around and spy out what someone else is doing. First of all, if you're here this morning and you would say, I am a Christian. I identify as a Christian. And I know that there may well be in a group this size some who aren't Christian. Some who are really thinking it through and wrestling with it and weighing it. So that is perfectly fine place to be this morning, but if you're here and you would say, I am a Christian, just raise your hand, even in subtle, inhibited ways like I raise my hand. Keep it up because I'm going to ask you one more question. If you would say becoming a Christian necessarily means becoming someone committed to obeying Jesus in every aspect of life, consistently and habitually. Becoming a Christian means that. Not later. Becoming a Christian means becoming an obedient follower of Jesus Christ in every area of life. Keep your hand up. If you don't think it means that, then put your hand down. Okay? A number of you went like this to this. So <laughs> I understand that. You can put your hands down now. A number of others... I think in the last service, looked over to see what Pastor Ben was doing or something like that. <laughs> but honestly and sincerely and seriously, I want to, as best I can, once and for all, answer that question as one of your pastors, and the answer to that question is yes. Rightly understood, the answer to that question is yes, and it is importantly yes. It's importantly yes for you and your spiritual condition, but also for those that you care about and you minister to. For your children and your grandchildren and your family member and your friends and anyone who's in a Bible study with you and anyone who's with you in this church, anyone in your sphere of influence, it's crucial that we come to understand this. And I'm going to try to go through and I hope make it unmistakable because I know there is a religious consensus out there that has gotten to the place and gotten momentum that separates that kind of obedient commitment 
from salvation and the idea that you can get forgiveness and you can go to heaven without ever committing to being truly obedient to Jesus in every sphere of life. I know that that's out there, and it's not small. In some places, it's the majority consensus. But I would say it nullifies and cancels out the teaching of God's Word. Now let's go to God's Word together and see why I would say that. Place to start is Acts chapter 2, because the reason that we come to acknowledge and obey Jesus in every area is because the gospel message tells us he's the Lord of all. Acts chapter 2 is Peter on the day of Pentecost. He's, they've been waiting in Jerusalem just like Jesus told them to do. Now the Holy Spirit has come with power upon them. Now they're to be witnesses first in Jerusalem. That's exactly what Peter is doing, carrying out the great commission and the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time by a long shot to go to the details of his sermon, but sometime this Lord's Day, read Acts chapter 2, and I would guess that this sermon is going to be sort of surprising to you in what it emphasizes and frankly what you might feel like it leaves out. But Jesus gets to the climax of this message in verse 36 and he says, therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one, it means king, He's the king who saves. So for Peter, the climactic declaration to make when he's preaching the gospel, now don't misunderstand, he doesn't even call him savior here. He does other places, and that's importantly, obviously a part of it. But he can come to the first evangelistic sermon of the spirit-filled church and say, God has made Jesus Lord, an authoritative term, and Messiah, the king who saves, also an authoritative term. And they say, what should we do? And he says, repent. Change your mind and outlook and perspective in the profoundest of ways about how you think of Jesus Christ and be baptized. And baptism in New Testament terms is that act of expression of our new allegiance to Jesus Christ. Remember the terms of the Great Commission. Make disciples of all the nations. And we'll see that in just a moment. Uh, Paul, in his ministry... Same call to repentance, Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Acts chapter 26, verse 20. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance, that is their new allegiance, by their deeds, by their new obedience. And so I just want to do a Bible survey, a quick Bible survey on the theme of allegiance and obedience to Christ, to the Messiah. And the first passage I want us to think about might surprise you where it is because it's all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, tucked away in this prophecy about Judah and his descendants, it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler, the king, the Lord's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. The obedience of the nations shall belong to Messiah when he comes. Does that obedience of the nations language remind you of anything? Think, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Because that's true, go and make disciples, learners slash obeyers, of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's one sign of their submission. And what? What comes next in the Great Commission? Teaching them to what? Obey everything I've commanded. That to Jesus is the fulfillment of what was prophesied about him as Messiah. Obey everything I've commanded, Jesus says. Think about this for a moment, too. If I go along with Christian teaching only in the areas that I kind of already agree with and I see why it's workable and I see why it's to my advantage and it's beneficial, so yeah, in that area, I'm I'm going with it. I'm going to go with it. But this area, no. This area of the teaching of Jesus, no. This, no. Am I obedient to everything he's commanded? Have I become a disciple? If it's a la carte, no. So we need to recognize that someone, thank God, in the church, someone who's newly come to faith in Christ, and I've been meeting with him. Can't guess who he is, know who he is, but anyway, I've been meeting with him. And it's been exciting to see because he hasn't been taught in any kind of form this version of Pray the prayer, make a decision, and maybe someday, who knows, maybe that whole discipleship thing will kick in. He doesn't even know that that's kind of out there. As he's engaged with his Bible, and he and I have interacted, it's been now that you know Jesus is master and king, you'll obey in every area of your life. And there's some areas of his life that are not in keeping with what the Bible calls for, and they're not easy changes. So you know what his attitude has been? I guess they'll need to change him. It's not going to be easy. But, and I'll, we sit at a desk in such a way that it's side by side because I want to see him. Everything I'm teaching, this is coming from the teachings of Jesus. This is the Bible. And he sees it. He comes to understand it's true. He's like, I guess I need to do that. That's going to be hard, but I guess I need to do that. Things that he hasn't been doing that aren't a part of his life, I guess I need to start doing that. That's what we're talking about. That's what these passages are describing. That kind of obedience. When Paul talked about his ministry in Romans chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Through him, Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of, of faith among all the nations. That echoes Genesis 49 in the Great Commission also. The obedience that arises from faith. And in Romans 6, 17, when he describes their particular conversion, how does he describe it? Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that pattern of teaching which has now claimed your allegiance. Paul is talking about their salvation point, not five years later. When something happened, and they finally decided that obedience was going to be a part of it. In Romans 15, 18, he describes this missionary work. I'll not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations 
to obedience. Not sounding very optional to me. In Romans 16, verse 19, when he talks about the Roman church's conversion again, he says, everyone has heard about your, and you might expect, faith. That's what he says. Everything has heard about your obedience. So I rejoice because of you. The Bible says in all kinds of ways, even when it doesn't use the particular word, obey or obedience. 2 Corinthians 5, for Christ's love compels us but because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. Remember Pastor Ben's message from this summer from Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all people and it teaches us, it disciples us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly desires and to live soberly, godly, righteous lives in this present age. He gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good, eager to obey. Hebrews 5, 8, 9, Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who, guess what? Not even trust or believe in him, for all who obey him. Now, I think it's possible that you're sitting here thinking, you know, I haven't heard these passages very much. Usually when I hear of salvation and conversion, it's sort of believe, believe, and, and that's absolutely true. But here's what we were talking about before. It's possible not to pay close enough attention to the entirety of God's word and to start to miss things and to start to distort our understanding of how we rightly engage with God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. As obedient children, literally as children of obedience. That's a Hebrew idiom to call you a children of something. You're so characterized by it, it must be your dad. As children of obedience, it's just in your genetic code. As children of obedience, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance before you knew that Jesus was Lord. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And then we've talked about before, when the Thessalonians were converted, this is how Paul describes it. And again, it's clear he's talking about when they first came to Christ, not some subsequent state or optional stage. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and it's the word that means to serve as a slave, as a doulos. That serve language comes from the Old Testament. Famous passages like, choose you this day whom you will serve. doesn't mean whom you'll just go up to temple to worship. It means all of life. Who are you going to serve? The Thessalonians chose Jesus Christ as Lord. He's the one that I'm going to serve as the obedient slave of in every area of my life from now on. And so... It, it means become very proactive and intentional about it. Not just, I prayed a prayer, I made a decision, now I'll try to stay kind of scandal-free and sort of keep up with the Joneses religiously and spiritually. No. Now I'm like, 
How can I serve him in every sphere in a deliberate way? I'll keep learning the Bible. I'll keep learning the teachings of Christ. I'll keep learning the word of God. And that's how I'm going to live from now on because Jesus is master. Sometimes I can't remember what I said in one message when, we, when I do three like this. But I thought Luke chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus has this very candid moment. And he says to them, why do you keep calling me Lord when you don't actually do what I say? They honor me with their lips, but their heart's far from me. It's just for Jesus to say, you know, eventually sort of, you know, the whole call me master thing, you might as well stop doing that because you're not acting like a slave. You don't actually do what I say. And that's how real it is. Now, sometimes when I preach or taught like this, people are like, we don't like slave language. The Bible says we're God's children. We are God's children. But nothing about that diminishes the submission and the obedience. Children in that culture especially were very much obedient to their father. And we've already seen Peter speak in terms of obedient children. Others say, well, we're friends of God and friends of Jesus. That's blessedly, undeservedly gospel truth too. And what does Jesus say in John 15, 14? You are my friends if... You do what I command. Being God's child and Jesus' friend reinforces the call to obedience. It doesn't mitigate it or water it down. David Platt has written a book, Follow Me, that a lot of you have heard of, some of you have read, some of you have only heard of. It's saying what we're trying to say in a sermon like this. He says at one place, when we become followers of Jesus, we make a decided break with an old way of living. Not just bits and pieces, but an entire way of living. An entire way of processing and doing life. We make a decided break with that and take a decisive turn to a new way of life. Let me illustrate that from Ephesians chapter 4. And this from, comes from Paul, the apostle of grace alone, by faith alone, not from works, but never hear that as saying obedience doesn't matter. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the conversion of the Ephesian Christians and the ongoing life that should follow. And he says, first of all, in verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live, literally walk, your day-by-day, step-by-step, as the Gentiles do, as the unsaved do. And then he spells out more about that. You can't live that way any longer. I insist on it, Paul says. He says in verse 21, or verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. It's that big a change so that someone who knew you before you became a Christian, well, that was his way of life before. Now that's his former way of life. Now there's a new way of living. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new man, created it to be like God in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then he gives a very practical example down in verse 28. He who has been stealing, what? Must, you know, give some real thought to someday, you know, probably, I don't know when, but, you know. No, must steal no longer. That's what Paul's view of conversion means. In fact, he says, 
you don't just give up the old, you embrace the new. Now he must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. He used to steal and take what he didn't deserve. When conversion really happens, not only does he stop stealing, he stops working in such a way, he starts working in such a way that now there's a surplus so that he can share. Think also of Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19. And contrast him with the rich young ruler who was a covetous man who loved money like Zacchaeus was. The rich young ruler engages with Jesus. Jesus puts his finger on the area of obedience that is crucial and the rich young ruler is reluctant about. The rich young ruler decides, I'm not going to give up all that I have and follow him like Messiah the Lord has told me to do. He goes away, Jesus is sad. And the man is sad, and Jesus says, it's awfully hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, that man's lost who just left there. Zacchaeus engages with Jesus, and it says in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, after engaging with Jesus, who knows what exactly was shared or said, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. You know, it's very easy to zoom right past that. He has been convicted. I have cheated people in the past. I've extorted. I've been covetous. Having said all of that, how many of us convicted of that would decide, I am going to divest myself of half of my assets and possessions, and I'm going to give it to the poor? now that you've come to repentance. And if I've cheated anything, anybody out of anything, I'll give it back. I'll pay back four times the amount. How does Jesus respond? Chill, Zacchaeus. Salvation's not of works. You cannot earn it. That's not how Jesus responds. He says, this man just got saved. Today, salvation has come to this house. That's what the new obedience looks like when it's real and when it's genuine. The Apostle John says, by this we know that we've come to know him, if we're saved. That is, by this we know that we've come to be saved, that we know him. And what's the next phrase? If we keep his commandments. And then just to be clear, whoever says, I know him, got a story of my decision gesture to tell you, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is someone who needs to be more carefully trained. No, is a liar is not telling the truth at that point. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. You know, I have to be kind of honest. At this point, studying this theme again and again, I'm to the place, I'm like, how did this ever become a question? 
How did we ever get to the place of engaging with God's word that our own religious consensus gave the idea that somehow you could get forgiveness and heaven from Jesus and not engage with him as Lord and come to this kind of obedience? It seems to me abundantly clear. And I've barely scratched the surfaces of the passages that I wrote down, let alone all the ones that we could have come to. And so when we come to this kind of new obedience in practical terms, it means that I will deliberately and proactively and gladly and eagerly go to the teachings of Jesus and God's word, and we find out the Old Testament looked forward to him, so that's kind of included. He said, once I'm gone, I'll send the Holy Spirit to teach you to teach more. So that's the rest of the New Testament. So we've got our entire Bible. This is the teaching of Jesus. You're a Christian, that means you habitually and deliberately and gladly learn as much of the Bible as you can because you want to obey Jesus as pleasingly and as completely, even though it will be incomplete because we're, we're, uh, we're still sinners. It'll be incomplete and imperfect, but it will be genuine and unconditioned the rest of our lives. How you treat Sunday as the Lord's Day. How do you decide that? The religious consensus kind of around me, and I want to stay within three units of what others are doing or something like that. Or, what is the teaching of Jesus? What would the Bible's teaching lead me to do? Your expectations about what worship is. How do you decide what worship is? What I like, what I prefer, consensus, no. What's the teaching of Jesus? How you spend your money, being intentional about things like evangelism and living a life full of good works, of justice and mercy that calls us to, it's not just no, it's saying yes to things that the Lord, Master, Jesus calls us to do. Tonight we'll think about the blessings and the benefits of obedience because it's this terrible mistake to think, oh, obedience is the downside of salvation. No, it's part of the salvation. It's an emancipation from a futile way of living. It's our real and true freedom. J.C. Ryle, who was kind of the David Platt of his day, said, let your Christianity be so unmistakable and let me say honestly, some of you here, your Christianity isn't unmistakable. Your parents are concerned, your friends are concerned, your pastors are sure, you're, they just can't really tell. Let your Christianity be so unmistakable and your walk so straightforward that all who see you may have no doubt whose you are and whom you serve. Or in the language of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, what a great commendation to get from the Apostle. You guys are just in the habit of obedience. As you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out, not for, continue to work out your salvation and take it seriously with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will, to give you the desire to obey in the first place, and to act and to do 
in order to fulfill his good purpose. That is the habit of heart, mind, and life for a true, obedient follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, as always, we pray that you will give us the grace and wisdom to test anything we hear preached or taught, read, blogged, that claims to be truth from you, that we test it by your word, and not merely the religious consensus that we encounter. And Father, help us to see that this stuff matters. That really eternal destinies hinge because people can come to a false assurance claiming to have converted when the change really hasn't happened. Help us then to see from Scripture that coming to Christ means coming to a commitment to obey everything he commands. We pray in his worthy name as Lord and Master of everybody everywhere. Amen.